Good morning. We are continuing the Gospel of Matthew today. Next Sunday will be something of an anniversary. Next Sunday will be the 100th sermon in Matthew. We're in chapter 16 and 100 sermons, and I just want to apologize for going so quick. We're going to slow it down and see if we can delay it till Jesus comes. What if we do that? People laugh at that, but you know, sometimes I take fairly good-sized chunks, but as I study, I get to the point where I say, you know, that'll preach, and Matthew chapter 16, looking at verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some John the Baptist, and others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it and the power of it. I thank you for preserving it for the the thousands of years it has been uh, in our hands. I thank you that the ink is still wet. It is still your living word. And I ask that you would teach us this morning and that you would encourage us. The scripture says that all of, all of the scripture is breathed out by you. It's profitable for teaching, that we may know you. It's, repro- it's profitable for reproof, so that we would be shown our error and our sin. It's profitable for correction, to show us how to live rightly, and it's profitable for training in righteousness. And all of that so that we would be fully equipped for the life that you have given us to to live. And so I ask for that blessing this morning. Do by your spirit what no human being can do and build your people. In your precious name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. So to give you a little bit of a setting, in previous chapters, Jesus had taken his disciples. They had gone to the Mediterranean coast, a Gentile area around the cities of Tyre and Sidon. After that, they had headed back east, east of the Jordan River to another Gentile area called the Decapolis. He returned briefly to Galilee, and then he takes them here north to the city of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was originally a a city called Panaeus. It was a Gentile city, predominantly. Panaeus uh, is, is named after the Greek god Pan. In 14 AD, Herod Philip, who was the son of Herod the Great, renamed the city for Tiberius Caesar and for himself, and we end up with Caesarea Philippi. It was the capital of the region of Galanitis, and uh, it's located in what you now would know as the Golan Heights. Uh, I've heard of the Golan Heights since I was a kid 
1968 was the the uh, Israel's war with Egypt, and I've I've heard of the Golan Heights this entire time, and I've really, never really known where it was. The Golan Heights is a stretch from the Sea of Galilee, which is 600 or 800 feet below sea level, rising up toward Mount Hermon, which is still the highest point in Israel. It's actually, I'm sorry, Mount Hermon is actually on the Lebanese-Syrian border now, but it was the highest point in Israel at the time. Jesus is in his last six months of public ministry, and he is focusing his attention now uh, intensely on his disciples. He had spent the better part of two years in the area of, of Galilee and the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, speaking to the crowds, speaking to the multitudes. And now he is removing himself somewhat from the constant public contact. And he's focusing on preparing his disciples for his crucifixion and his resurrection and then the church that would come with the, uh, the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. Now, his disciples have been with Jesus for two and a half years or so at this point. They've heard his teaching. They've observed his miracles. They've observed his character. We shouldn't think of Jesus as a cult leader who had these 12 guys and he never let them out of his sight. He spent much of his time in Galilee in the city of Capernaum. It was his adopted hometown. It was the hometown of Peter and James and John. And I think it's only reasonable to think that when they were there, they spent the nights with their families and they would gather to him during the day to do what he did, but then they would go back to their homes. So they were with their families, and they were with the crowds. They were with the people that they met, and they heard people talking. Uh, if, if you've never been in pastoral ministry or a leadership position in a job or something, then you may not think about this, but I am generally the last person to hear about what's going on. People will talk to each other long before they'll talk to me. And the same thing happens in a business. The boss doesn't hear. All the employees talk. So Jesus is wanting to know, and he knows because he's God, but he's wanting to know what do the people say. And so he asks that question, who do the people say that I am? The disciples are quick to answer. Some say John the Baptist. Uh, he had been murdered by Herod, the, Herod Antipas and they believed, okay, well, maybe John has risen from the dead and has come back. Other people said, well, he's Elijah. Elijah, uh, in, in one of the kings, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, my wife knows I don't know. I didn't look it up. 2 Kings, thank you. Elijah, at the end of his life, did not die. Uh, uh, Elisha saw a, a chariot of fire come down and then a whirlwind, and the whirlwind picked up Elijah and took him to heaven without him apparently dying so maybe Elijah's come back now this is interesting if you've ever been to a Passover Seder they may have explained this that often Jewish homes especially on the Sabbath or on the Passover will have an empty chair at the table and it's Elijah's chair because they believe that Elijah is going to come back and he could come back at any time and it could be that tonight as we're beginning the Passover or we're beginning the Sabbath there's a knock on the door and it's Elijah and he's hungry and he's going to sit at the table so they would set a place for Elijah even in Jesus time they had this idea he was going to return other people said well it's Jeremiah Jeremiah was one of the last prophets of the kingdom he wasn't the last of the, the Jewish prophets. You've got Ezekiel and you've got some others after the exile, but Jeremiah is there as the kingdom itself is toppling. 
Jeremiah was an extraordinarily unpopular prophet. God said to his people through Jeremiah, don't believe the false prophets who tell you everything is going to be fine. Everything is not going to be fine. I'm going to destroy you. That didn't mean that individuals couldn't repent and confess, but God was done. And so Jeremiah was not a happy prophet. It's interesting that you've got people in Israel identifying Jesus as Jeremiah. They could be thinking he's going to get rid of the Romans. More likely, they're thinking he's got to do something about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he's going to. Or he's just one of the prophets. He's somebody else. He's somebody else. The people answer from their own knowledge and experience and assumptions. Now, Jesus was a remarkable man. He was a unique man. He bore authority from God. He spoke and and acted on behalf of God. He was someone to to be admired. He was someone to be recognized. But they answer out of their knowledge and experience and assumptions. They are generally right, but they're specifically wrong. There was never a person in Israel who listened to Jesus teach and then watched what he did and noticed his character who turned to somebody else and said, you know something? He's the Christ, the son of the living God. Instead, they took their own knowledge and experience and history, their their assumptions, and they tried to fit Jesus into their, their views. They assumed that they knew everything that there would be to know about the Christ, about, about these types of things. He can't be something we've never heard of. We, he can't be something we've never anticipated. We have to fit him in. I heard a story years ago about a, a family. They're having their Easter meal. They're preparing it on on uh, Easter morning and the mom goes to put the ham in the pan and she cuts the end off the bone and she puts it in the pan and the daughter who's grown she's got a family she says mom I've never asked why do you do that and she says I don't know that's what my mom did so they go to grandma grandma's there at the house in the living room grandma why did you cut the end off of the the bone on Easter and she said oh it wouldn't fit in my pan So we've got these traditions and ideas, and Jesus isn't fitting. We're just going to trim him to fit. We're going to remove the things that make us uncomfortable, and we'll keep the things that we think are appropriate. Now, the truth is that Jesus' teachings and works were enough to identify him. John 10, Jesus says, and he's speaking to the Jews here, the Pharisees. He says, if I I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and continue knowing that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. But the sin of rebellion and the rebellion of sin blinds us and it keeps us from understanding. And so he says in John 8 to the Jews again, to the Pharisees, if God were your father, you would love me for I have proceeded forth and have come from God I have not come of myself but he sent me and then in verse 47 he who is of God hears the words of God for this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God there is a a barrier before us Paul in in uh, 2nd Corinthians chapter 3 talks about the Jews whenever the law is ready said to this day there's a veil there's a veil over their eyes they don't see So the people had these conclusions. I think most of them were sincere. 
but they were wrong. Sincere plus wrong is wrong. Somebody might have said, I believe he's Elijah. They're wrong. What if they said, but I really believe he's Elijah? Oh, that's different. You're really wrong. What if they said, oh, I sincerely really believe he's Elijah? Well, that's completely different. Now you're really sincerely wrong. The strength of belief doesn't make something right. We wanted to. We want to think that if enough people believed in Jesus, it would have made him something. But he was already who he was. Our world today is full of opinions about who he is. People want to define Jesus by their knowledge and experience and and assumptions. And I hear people say, my God would never send anybody to hell. My God would never condemn homosexuals for, for being loving. Every single human conclusion about Jesus Christ is wrong, no matter how strongly held, no matter how sincere. We have to go with what Scripture says. It's the only reliable source. So we've seen the views of the people, but there's another question to be asked, and it's really the question of, uh, of questions. Who do you say that I am? It's the most important question anyone can ask or answer. It's the most question that ever comes before us. Jesus asks the group, and Peter answers for the group. Who do you say that I am? And Jesus answer, or Peter answers, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. See, that's right. That's spot on right. That's exactly right. It's a true answer. Let me say this. It's also an irreducible answer. Jesus is more than the Christ and the Son of, and the living, uh, Son of the living God. But Jesus is not less than the Christ, the Son of the living God. We can't reduce him to less than that. So for the first time, his disciples have cottoned on to this idea of who he is. As the Christ, Jesus is the Christ. Christ is a Greek word. It's related to the Hebrew word Messiah. Both mean anointed one. So Jesus Christ is the man anointed by God to be the prophet, priest, and king, to be the savior of mankind, which requires that he be prophet, priest, and king. As the prophet, Jesus is the full and final revelation of God to man. Hebrews chapter 1 says, God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, spoke to us in his son. In Jesus, God has said all that he has to say. The scriptures are not a full revelation of who Jesus is, but the scriptures are a true revelation of who Jesus is. There's infinitely more to God than could be contained in a book. But right now, Jesus has given us that book through his apostles so that we can know without question and without doubt who he is, what he desires of us, what he prohibits, what his purposes are. As priest, Jesus is the the one mediator between God and man. He fulfills every aspect of the atonement on his own. That atonement is a propitiatory atonement. That means it's a satisfying atonement. It satisfies the wrath of God. Now, a propitiatory sacrifice requires three elements. It requires a priest, a high priest. It requires a sacrifice, and it requires an altar. So Jesus is the priest who offers the sacrifice. 
He is the sacrifice itself. And he's the altar upon which that sacrifice is offered. See, that word propitiation, that God has made a propitiation, Jesus has made propitiation, is the word that we get mercy seat from. Mercy seat is a reference to the top of the Ark of the Covenant. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies. The curtain would be drawn back, and he would take that blood, and he would sprinkle it on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And if you haven't thought about this, just to kind of give you a picture. The Holy of Holies is a room 45 feet square. The walls are covered with hammered gold. The Ark of the Covenant is covered with hammered gold. The ceiling would have been high, 90 feet perhaps. And it may not have been gold, but the walls were. And the Ark was. And the priest went in with the blood of the sacrifice in a bowl and he pours it out. And that light that had been bouncing around that room that was golden light filling the room now becomes scarlet red because of the blood. That's the propitiatory. That's the mercy seat. So Jesus is the high priest who offers his own blood upon his own holy life, his own, his, himself. Every aspect of the atonement is contained by him and performed by him. Jesus doesn't show up and say, okay, I'm the high priest. Somebody bring me a sacrifice. Jesus doesn't say, I'm here to be the sacrifice. Who will the high priest be? He contains all of it, which means it's complete when he offers it. There's nothing for us to do. There's nothing for us to add. As, as king, Jesus is the ruler whose kingdom has no end. He possesses the king. He possesses everything in it. Every creature, including every human being, owes him complete allegiance. To deny him his rightful worship is to commit treason and to be treacherous toward our God and toward our creator. What I find to be so wonderful is Zechariah 6.13 ties his priestly and kingly roles together. It says, Indeed, it is he who will build the temple of Yahweh, and he who will bear the splendor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. The Old Testament had, uh, during the, 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 the kingdom period at least, had prophets, had kings, and had priests. And those three, and I guess in a sense they functioned like our government supposed to function with checks and balances, three, three branches. And so King David, when he sins, is rebuked by the prophet Nathan. But Jesus comes to be the king and the priest and the prophet all in one. Perfect exercise of power, perfect exercise of the rule of God. Jesus is the king who came in humility and gentleness, bringing salvation and bringing righteousness with him. Jesus is the king in whom the Gentiles hope. He's the king we want, even though we won't admit it, even though we don't know it. He rules and reigns today. He rules and reigns over Christians by subduing them to his grace and granting them new life. He rules and reigns over the wicked by restraining some from sin and giving others over to their sin in judgment. And he will one day reward his people and he will conquer his enemies. He is the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. 
that Jesus is the Christ. And it's all and so much more carried in that word. That Jesus is also the son of the living God, perfectly and completely God, co-equal to God the Father and God the Spirit, eternal, glorious, and worthy of worship. Colossians chapter 1 says this about Jesus. And I've, I've replaced the pronouns with Jesus because I don't want us to miss who is being spoken about. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Jesus all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus all things hold together. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that Jesus himself will come to have first place in everything. Uh, it, it build, build the highest mountain you can think of. Take Mount Everest and triple it in height, quadruple it in height, multiply itself by itself. And at the top is Jesus Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. How much did Peter understand? Not much. I don't think he understood all this. I don't think he got that much. But back in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus had calmed a storm. You remember Jesus and his disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee in a boat, and a storm comes up, and the disciples are frightened, and they, they, they beg him to do something, and he calms the storm. Shh, hush. And it just goes away. And they say to each other, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? They're no longer asking. Now they know. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Over the time, their understanding is going to increase greatly. The New Testament is the result of that. But Peter's, bare bone, Peter's confession, even though it's bare bones, even though it's just an outline, opens the door for them. How did they know? Well, Jesus tells him, you're blessed, Simon Peter, Simon Barjona, Simon son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Flesh and blood means any human or earthly source. How do you know? Well, it's not from his parents. It's not from synagogue school. It's not from... Uh, teachers it's not from other disciples it's not from the crowds who, who are confused it's not even from his own study it's not even from his own meditations and contemplation of the scripture it, it's not even because of his own imagination it's because god the father revealed it to him and i believe them in his own time according to the good pleasure of his will God is in control of all knowledge and understanding. Jesus prayed back in Matthew 11, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this, was, uh, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And he goes on to say, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. He's in control. 
of all things. And ultimately, people are completely dependent upon God to reveal Christ to them. John 6, Jesus says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Learning from the Father, being taught by the Father, precedes coming to Christ. And so what we do in terms of ministry, in terms of outreach, in terms of evangelism and teaching is, is not what God does. We don't have that power. We don't have the ability to do that. Our job is not to, to be the persuaders. Our job is to be the proclaimers, to simply speak the truth. As we bring this home, we know a lot of what the world thinks about Jesus today. Our, our world wants Jesus today to be nothing but love and softness and apathy. I had a man approach me a, a few weeks ago after a message at the mission. And in that message, if you've heard me preach, you know that there's a reality of judgment. There's a need for salvation. And I had talked about that, as I do. He came up and said, but Jesus is, God is love. And I said, God is love, but God is holy. And, and nobody should think that when they arrive before the throne of judgment, that when they're condemned for their sin, they can say, oh, but your love, and have God say, oh, I didn't think of that. We, we can't trip him up. We can't use his virtues and his, his attributes against him. He is love. But he's holy, too. There is a blessing for faith. There is a, a blessing for humility before him. But there's also judgment for disobedience. That word judgment's a big word. When that word judgment is applied to unbelievers, it means eternal torment. When that word judgment is applied to believers, it means discipline. Not punishment. Punishment means payment. If you get a speeding ticket, the punishment is, is the fine. You have to pay that. Discipline is, is correction. Punishment's always about the past. Think about it. Punishment is, I'm going to make you pay for what you've done. Discipline is, I'm going to change what you do in the future. So he disciplines his children. He doesn't punish us. He disciplines us. But people today, and I'm, I'm just going to be as clear as I can, they want Jesus to be a weak, fawning, needy person who is so afraid of being abandoned that he will put up with every sort of neglect, abuse, and insult. They make Jesus to be a, a codependent who's desperate, so desperate to belong that he won't stand up for himself. That's not Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. So who do you say Jesus is? Is he the Christ, the anointed one from God, the promised prophet, priest and king, the savior of the world? Is he the son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, full of grace, able to save sinners? If you believe that in your heart, if you know that, if you know it with the kind of depth that if somebody insults him, if somebody says, 
uh, as, as Stephen Furtick, a, a well-known false teacher, as Stephen Furtick said recently, God broke his law to save us. You can say, no. I don't even need to know the reference. No, he's holy. And I know that the same way that I know my wife. And I know what she would do and what she wouldn't do. And you can say, Linda said this. And I'd say, yeah, okay, yeah, I can see Linda saying that. Or, <laughs> or Linda said this, and I could say, no, never. No, never. You either heard that from somebody else who's lying or you're lying. That's this knowledge, but we don't get it out of simply studying the Bible. We get it because the truth of the word of God is inserted and implanted deep within our hearts and souls by the spirit of God. So that we we come to know him, in a sense, better than we even know ourselves. Father, we thank you for your love for us. And I lift up the men and women here, and I ask that you would strengthen your people. And Lord, if there's someone who doesn't know you, I ask that you would do the work that only you can do and teach them so that they learn from you. Because if you teach them and they learn from you, they will come to Jesus. We thank you for this day. In Jesus' precious name, amen.